pessimism followed by about 10 minutes of hopeful optimism to the praise of God's glorious grace. Sweet. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Jamie. Uh, I'm a pastor who uh, most weeks gets the opportunity of opening up and unpacking the scriptures with God's people as we gather in this place, uh, which by the way, thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. Excited to, to get after this. Um, as Jason mentioned, yeah, this is a, a very honest dive, a deep dive into a, a book that um, honestly, a lot of churches don't uh, tend to dive into. You can go look for podcasts of the book of Ecclesiastes. They're a little harder to find than other books of the Bible. One of the most criticized, complex, and confusing uh, books in all of Scripture, one that Martin Luther once said, uh, no one has ever completely mastered. And so that many have asked the question, why in the world is this book even in the Bible? How did it make it <clears throat> into the canon of Scripture? It includes within itself what appears to be contradictory messages, wisdom preserving life in chapter seven and wisdom failing to preserve life in chapter two, dying better than living in chapter four, living better than dying in chapter nine. And not only does the book itself include what appears to be contradictory messages, but when you leave the book and look at other books of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to contradict some of those other writings. So that the author of Ecclesiastes declares the wise to be no better than the fool in chapter 2, verse 16, while Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18 declares wisdom to be a tree of life that blesses those who lay hold of her. The author of Ecclesiastes declares that we should walk in the ways of our heart and the sight of our eyes, while the Lord declares, Numbers chapter 15, that we shouldn't follow after our own heart and our own eyes. What do you do with that? There's also the question of whether or not the author is crossing the line into an, an unhealthy pessimism, a critic of, of God and his world, a skeptic. No outbursts of praise throughout the entire book can be found. No prophetic words of hope, which begs the question, why study such a book? To use the language from week one of this series, if you were around then, why wrestle with the giant squid that is Ecclesiastes? And I've given some answers to that from week one that I'll likely continue to do throughout this series just to frame it for you if you're new. Uh, a few things. Number one, it's an honest book. It captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world arguably better than any other book of the Bible, refusing to ignore the greatest sadnesses and, and skepticisms associated with the life as we know it. Secondly, it's course-shaping meaning that the book of Ecclesiastes has the power to change the trajectory of our very lives, helping us to, to see the futility of a life lived in the pursuit of meaning apart from God so that we might turn to God and find our happiness and meaning in him. Thirdly, it's apologetic, meaning that it presents us with some of the most challenging questions of human existence, questions that philosophers have grappled with for ages helping us to see just how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life apart from God. Fourthly, it's doxological, meaning that it helps us to worship the true God for who he really is, the one who all-knowingly and all-powerfully reigns above the sun, to use that Ecclesiastes language. And then lastly, it's practical. It teaches us to view and approach things that are a part of everyday life, things like money and achievement and relationships and even death proving it to be a book that's not only timeless, but, but timely. And so for those reasons, among many others, I hope that you're compelled to stick around and see where this series takes us. With that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter three. We'll jump in at verse 16 uh, this morning and work our way through chapter four. By the time all is said and done, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and 
open up to this morning's passage with us. You can take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible or the translation you brought with you is maybe a little more difficult to track with. Let me pray for us because we got a little bit of ground to cover this morning and we'll, we'll get after it. God, I'm so grateful for the contrast that this book presents us with. That, yes, we have to navigate through some incredibly darkened waters of pessimism as we dive into much of what this book communicates to us. And and yet, it's in moving through those waters that on the other side, we see the beacon of light that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it shines all the more brightly for us having entered into these waters. And so, I pray that that would be the case this morning. I pray that we would see the futility and hopelessness of life lived under the sun, to use the author's language, and that all the more we would be encouraged, we would be comforted, we would be uh, fortified with a, a sort of steel in the spine of our soul as we leave this place, knowing that, that you are with us and that you've surrounded us with your people, uh, that the gospel has purchased a companionship that the world could not know otherwise. And that that is your kindness and your grace to us. God, would you move in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, without you, uh, we are helpless in moments like these. So would you move? Uh, Would you help us to see and to hear and to receive with our hearts uh, the the wonder that is is here for us this morning uh, in the divine revelation of yourself? It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So the book of Ecclesiastes particularly if you're new to this series, it begins with a statement and a question, both. In chapter one, verse two, the author of Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That that word is used more than 30 times throughout the book, vanity, some form of the word showing up in every single chapter of the book except chapter 10. It literally means vapor or mist, like a breath of cold air quickly disappearing on a winter day or smoke rising up from a fire and vanishing into the sky. It can mean that life is elusive, it's mysterious and incomprehensible. When we try to grasp the answers, they slip through our fingers. It can also mean life is momentary, here today, gone tomorrow, the way James talks in chapter four, verse 14 of his writing where he says, what is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Vanity can also mean in the book that life is futile. It's never ultimately or truly satisfying. It's a chasing after the wind as it pertains to happiness and meaning to be found in this world. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The author leads out with with that declarative statement and then he presents us with the question that led him to such a pessimistic introduction. Chapter one, verse three, he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's the Socratic method at its finest. The author presenting the reader with questions that we might not otherwise wrestle with, pushing us to to really look at and ask the question, why? With respect to everything we believe and everything that we do. The author of Ecclesiastes asks, what's what's the return on investment? What, What does it profit a person to toil under the sun? That that phrase from week one, I've unpacked this because it's key to unlocking the meaning of the book. That phrase, under the sun, just as complex in its various meanings as the word vanity. It's used roughly 30 times throughout the book itself. It can mean life as we know it in a fallen world. Things are not as they should be. We're surrounded by everything that makes this world sad, longing for something better. 
but it can also mean a view of the world absent of God, a, a this is all there is outlook. There's nothing above the sun, that kind of view of the world. No true meaning and beauty because life is not a, a beautiful, meaningful story, but rather a meaningless accident. It can also mean under the sun, a belief in God, but one that falls short of the triune covenant Lord of scripture. So that when the author of Ecclesiastes talks about fearing God, he doesn't use the, the name Yahweh uh, as the author of Proverbs does when he talks about fear of the Lord, but rather Elohim, which is a, a more general uh, terminology in terms of identifying God in name, less having to do with an intimate covenant relationship that Yahweh communicates. And you also see it in other ways too. You don't see the author of Ecclesiastes unpacking certain attributes or ways that God interacts with his people. There's no fatherhood and sonship language in the book of Ecclesiastes like you see elsewhere in the Bible. There's no coming Messiah who will res rescue his people from under the sun. So that under the sun can, can mean a falling short of the fullness of who God is in the book of Ecclesiastes. But under the sun can also mean a right confessional belief in God and yet a functional living for the glory and kingdom of self. So that there's application for those of us who walk into the room with a right biblical understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. But who wake up day in and day out functionally living as though this is all there is. And then lastly, under the sun can mean a limited perspective on life compared to God's perspective. The frustration of wanting all the answers and yet knowing that God has not chosen to share his divine attribute of all knowingness with us. And that can be frustrating when we want answers and when we want to see how everything is pieced together in our lives and the lives of other people. All these various ways of contemplating life under the sun show up throughout the course of the book. What does man gain, he asked, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Having looked at the endless cycles of nature, going back to chapter one, the world running in circles without any true progress or sense of direction, along with the reality that generations come and generations go, most of us to be forgotten when all's said and done, having ventured to go back to chapter two on a personal quest to find happiness and meaning by way of wisdom and pleasure and achievement, the author of Ecclesiastes comes up not only empty in the end, but to use his own language, hating life and giving his heart up to despair. Going back to last week, he's forced to admit that the seasons that we go through are not ultimately in our hands, frustrated by his limited understanding of God's activity in the world. Life under the loom, unable to see the full tapestry of what God is weaving. Each and every week, and I alluded to this earlier, each and every week of this series thus far, my, my hope has been to show the contrast for what it is. To give full expression to the author's unhappy experience of life under the sun so that we might experience a greater feeling sense of what's at stake in fixing our eyes above the sun. To show that there, there really is an above the loom hope in the story of redemption that the scriptures tell. This morning presents us with yet another opportunity to see that contrast as the author of Ecclesiastes brings into view the evil and injustice that exists in the world. Look at chapter three, verse 16. Picking up where we left off last week, he says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Wickedness is pervasive in this fallen, broken world, right? Even the place of justice, the courts of law, even in the place of righteousness, the houses of worship, the very places where people should feel safest are not always safe. I recently was reminded of this in watching the, 
the new Netflix series that, that came out, uh, When They See Us, the story of the Central Park Five, five teenage boys wrongfully convicted of, of raping a woman in Central Park, sent away to prison for years before being exonerated, that we live in a world where justice is not always perfectly served, that you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time and end up being incriminated for something that you didn't do. You can have the right money and the right lawyer and get yourself off the hook for something that you did do. That's in the courts of law, the place of justice. And then there's the the place of righteousness, the houses of worship, where you have what the Bible goes on to say in the New Testament, an intermingling of the wheat and the tares. You have people coming together who truly love Jesus and people who really don't, who are just ritualistically doing this thing uh, as we come together in the assembly of God's people. You have corrupt leaders in the church. You have backbiting and, and envy, as we'll see momentarily. You have these things that come together in places even like this one that we sit in in this very moment, that we live in a world in which even courtrooms and church buildings are not a refuge from wickedness. Where there should be justice, there's evil. Where there should be righteousness, there's sin. He goes on to say in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. He reminds himself that that God is the executor of perfect justice, the one who brings every evil, tragedy, and injustice into account. And yet, he doesn't seem to find comfort in that because he goes on in the very next verse to say, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. He says something similar later in the book which helps to make sense of what he's talking about here. If you skip ahead to Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 11, he says, he says this, he says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The author of Ecclesiastes essentially understands that God is the ultimate executor of justice. His frustration is with God's delay in executing justice. He delays his judgment and this frustrates the author as he looks out upon the the wickedness that pervades society. Peter tells us, if you go on to read in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter three, verse nine, that God's delay of judgment is a grace, right? Giving us an opportunity to turn to him in repentance. But that's not at the forefront of the author's thinking here in the book of Ecclesiastes. He declares God's delay of judgment to be a test, revealing just how animalistic we truly are. In God choosing not to execute justice swiftly, man simply has more time to do more evil, in the eyes of the author of Ecclesiastes, at least until the great equalizer of death comes knocking. Look at verse 19, he says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. For they all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust and to dust all return. He says, human beings have no advantage over animals, same fate awaits both. So looking back on on the curse, Genesis chapter three, verse 19, sends entrance into the world. In response, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That there's a, a sense in which man who was created to rule the earth is now ruled by the earth. 
swallowed up by the very ground that he was meant to exercise dominion over, to go back to the story of creation. That in the words of one commentator I read this week, we die like beasts because we wanted to be like God. He goes on to take it even further and say this in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He says, if we're limited in our understanding of God's activity in the world in which we live, who are we to say that we can know with certainty what happens when we die? From an under the sun perspective, like who really knows? Verse 22, his conclusion. So I saw that there's nothing better and that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In the midst of the uncertainty of what the future holds, he says the best we can do for is live for today. The best we can hope for is to rejoice in our work now. That's our lot in life. Moving on into chapter four, he continues with this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He says, the, the oppressors are the ones with all the power, and the oppressed are the ones without any comfort, alone in the midst of their suffering. Better to be dead and no longer oppressed than to be alive and suffering in this world. Better yet, he says, to have never been born in the first place. Notice that he, he never mentions God as an advocate for the weak. Notice that he doesn't encourage the oppressed to cry out to God for help. He simply moves on to say in verse four, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The best you can do is enjoy your toil, but by the way, it's all motivated by envy, so that's vanity too. We work our fingers down to the bone, and for what? To get what our neighbor already has, he says. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous American poet, once said this, things are in the saddle, and they ride mankind. Similar to what the author of Ecclesiastes says in terms of imagery, Emerson declares that we're the animals, we're the ones with the bits in our mouths, being led and swayed by the next person or thing, whoever that person or whatever that thing may be. The author of Ecclesiastes says, that's vanity too. Proverbs 40, uh, 1430, envy makes the bones rot. Envy leads to ceaseless toil, and not only does it never manage to satisfy in what it brings us, but it slowly destroys us over the course of time. But lest we think that the answer is to swing the pendulum in the other direction, he goes on to say in verse five, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That idleness is no better than ceaseless toil motivated by envy. Idleness too leads to self-destruction. See it clearly in Proverbs chapter six, verses 10 and 11, where we're told a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So he says, coming back to this morning's passage, verse six of chapter four, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. 
Better to possess a little in quietness and tranquility than to possess much in vain, excessive toil. Says, says the man who, going back to chapter 2, toiled with all of his might to find happiness and meaning, right? In both pleasure and achievement. He had more than two handfuls when all was said and done, and yet it left him despairing and empty inside. He goes on to say in verse 7, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken, he says. But the argument is it's an unhappy business to, to toil in loneliness, particularly when you have no one to leave it to, never satisfied though acquiring great wealth. It's better to work alongside another, he says, to enjoy the, the reward in working with a companion. Many of us understand that wisdom principle, right? When, when you get into collaborative efforts, I experience this every Wednesday morning when I sit in on a preaching primer with six other guys and talk through the, the texts that we're going to be preaching in those sermon series that we link up on. And there, there isn't indeed no question week in and week out a wisdom that, that's shared in that collaboration See it in staff whiteboarding sessions along the way. See it in the complimentary roles within our home. My wife and I seeking to raise our, our girls and take care of all the responsibilities of, of what it is to be grown-ups. And it's not just the, the provision that comes in companionship, but also the protection. Notice that he incorporates three illustrations involving the dangers of, of traveling alone in the ancient Near East. He says there's the danger of falling down a steep embankment with no one to pull you up. There's the danger of freezing in the middle of the night with no one to keep you warm. There's the danger of being robbed by vandals when you have no one to have your back. I remember going back to last fall, we have two little girls, for those who might not know. One just turned five, the other's about to turn four, 13 months apart. And, and last year was the first year of them both in preschool together, the younger entering in for the first time. And I remember uh, riding with, with my wife and the kids to drop the girls off at preschool and looking back and saying to Lanier, our oldest daughter, take care of your, your baby sister. Even though she was four at the time, it was, there was some comfort in knowing that they might be on the playground together, that they were gonna be one room away from each other, you know, on the same hallway. There was something that gave a peace of mind of two being better than, than one. The author says in three are, are even better than two. That threefold cord, not, not meant to be pressed too much in its meaning. He, he's not all of a sudden bringing a Trinitarian understanding of God into view here, though the triune God is no doubt a beautiful expression of companionship. Nor is he offering a lesson on the benefits of godly marriage, though two spouses knit together in Christ is certainly a beautiful thing. He's simply making the point that there's strength and safety in numbers, which seems pretty encouraging at first glance, right? What is he, is he getting optimistic here? You know, in a sea of pessimism, is he finally bringing something hopeful into view? Let's keep reading. Verse 13, he says, 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The author closes out this chapter with a story, the story of a king who isolated himself from his advisors in his old age, having become too proud to receive counsel, and who was eventually supplanted by a young man having overcome poverty through wisdom, who established an enormous following over time. And yet, the wise king was ultimately forgotten, just like the foolish king, none rejoicing in him in the end. You see a similar story in chapter nine, if you fast forward in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter nine, verses 14 and 15, where he says, there was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city, similar to the poor wise youth who supplanted the king in his rule and reign. And yet, chapter nine, verse 15 no one remembered that poor man. Both of these stories, the, the author's emphasizing a point that he's already made, going back to chapter two, verse 16. Namely, that wisdom is more advantageous than folly, and yet even the wise will be forgotten in the end. Chapter two, verse 16, he had said it this way, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. The same fate awaits the old foolish king and the poor wise youth. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Do you, do you see what the, what the author of Ecclesiastes is presenting us with in this morning's passage? Hey, the best advice he's given us is to seek companionship while at the same time declaring the hopelessness of trying to find it. Hey, where are you gonna go? The, the very places where people should feel the safest, they're not always safe. You can't go to the, the place of justice, even there is wickedness. You can't go to the place of righteousness, even there is wickedness too. Wickedness pervades society. You're an animalistic sinner, he says, surrounding by other animalistic sinners. Welcome to a world filled with people who use their power to oppress other people. A world filled with people who envy one another, working their fingers down to the bone to fulfill the covetous desires of their hearts. A world filled with foolish people who sit on their hands in idleness. A world filled with people too proud to take advice. A world filled with people who might rejoice in you one day and forget you the next. Like, good luck finding your companionship. If, if confined to the book of Ecclesiastes alone, we will not find the answers that we're looking for. Going back to the very first week of this series, the author of Ecclesiastes is not only directing our eyes upward, to the God who reigns above the sun, but also outward beyond the pages of the book to find our answers in the story of redemption that the broader canon of scripture tells. That it, it wasn't just a curse that was pronounced in Genesis 3, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but also a promise, a hero to come and rescue us from sin's curse of death. That Jesus came to, to live this only perfect, just, righteous life that the world has ever known. Not a trace of wickedness to be found in Jesus. 
His perfect righteous record credited to wicked sinners by grace through faith. That Jesus came to suffer at the hands of corrupt politicians and religious leaders, now able through shared experience to comfort the oppressed in their tears. Jesus came to destroy the power of death through his own death, the sinless one bearing the sins of his people in sacrificial love, triumphing over death through his victorious resurrection so that the ashes and the dust will not have the final word. Jesus is the perfect king who doesn't use his power to corrupt or oppress, ruling the world with truth and grace, a king whose legacy will never be forgotten, a king who will always be rejoiced in for eternity. Jesus is the final judge, the once and for all answer to the problem of wickedness, that in Christ, every evil, tragedy, and injustice is in fact brought into account, either in his bearing the punishment for our sins in his body on the tree, or in our bearing the punishment for our sins when he returns again to set all things right. That there is, in fact, something on the other side of death. That for those who trust in Jesus, there is eternal blessedness. For those who fail to trust in Jesus, eternal punishment. To use the the language of the very first verse of this morning's passage, chapter 3, verse 16, no wickedness will survive his final court of law, the place of justice, and no wickedness will enter his final house of worship the place of righteousness, so that in Christ, and this is good news, the safe places will be truly safe forever. Which begs the question, do you believe in him? Have you put your trust in him? The sinless one, Jesus, who died in the place of sinners so that we might be reconciled to God, to use that companionship language so that we can know the companionship of a loving father, so that we can know the companionship of the indwelling Holy Spirit, so that we can know the companionship of the one true risen Savior and King. We sang it earlier, praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise him, hallelujah. He's the one to use the language of verse 10, who lifts us up when we fall. He's the one to use the language of verse 11, who warms our hearts when they grow cold. He's the one to use the language of verse 12, who stands with us against the attacks of the enemy. He's with us holding us fast by his grace, delighted to do so every single step of the way. And oh, by the way, he hasn't just given us himself in Christ. He's also given us the companionship of a forever family. We call it the church. A family that assists the weak and oppressed. A family not motivated by envy, but rather sacrificial love by his grace a family that helps each other to to persevere on the treacherous journey to the celestial city. I mentioned this, I believe it was a couple weeks ago that in light of our time in Ecclesiastes, I I decided to go back and reread John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And um, if you're not familiar with the story, it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character, his name is Christian, and and he's on a journey to the celestial city, the, the new Jerusalem. Uh, the new heaven and earth. And, and on his journey, he, he meets some enemies of the cross along with some fellow Christ followers. And it's a, it's a running of the race to the finish line to use Paul's imagery in the New Testament. Um, and, and one of the, the parts of the story that stuck out to me in a unique way that it had never stuck out to me before was toward the very end of the book, Christian is nearing the gate of the celestial city, and he has a companion at this point in the story, a guy by the name of Hopeful, who is also a a Christ follower. And they can see the gate off in the distance. It's in view. The only thing standing in the way of of them and and getting to the gate is a river. 
And they're told that there is no bridge, that you must wade through this river to cross it, and that the river will feel shallower or deeper based on your belief in the king of that city that's on the other side of the river. It's really a call to faith. And if you pick up the story there, and I'll give you an image of the, of the story as, up on the screen as I read this, so you can get, get a picture of it for yourself. We're told, then they addressed themselves to the water and entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend, hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. Then said Christian, ah, oh, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. And here he in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spoke still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they that stood by perceived, he was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim, a Christ follower. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Hopeful, therefore, had much ado in keeping his brother's head above water. Yea, sometimes he would be quite gone down and then he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful would endeavor to comfort him saying, brother, I see the gate and men standing by to receive us. But Christian would answer, it is you, it is you that they wait for. For you've been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, Hopeful said to Christian. Ah, brother, Christian said, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins, he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. Then said Hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked, there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Be of good cheer, Christian. Jesus Christ, Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Story goes on to say, Christian broke out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And then they both took courage and the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow. Welcome to the gift of God's grace known as the church. Has anybody, can anybody relate to, to the man on the right side of that pairing? Because I know I can. Those moments where you doubt, you, you question whether God loves you, you're reminded of, of your sins, past and present, can't seem to escape the question of, could God really bring someone like me into his family? That really, you, you hear the, the taunting of, of the enemy, the hobgoblins, to use Bunyan's language, whispering lies into your ears so that if left alone, you just might drown in that river. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for that picture of the church. 
The companionship of the redeemed is a gift of God's grace. That not only has God given us himself in Christ, and he is the greatest gift of the gospel, make no mistake about that, but he's also given us the companionship of a forever family. That it's when we look above the sun, to use that Ecclesiastes language, that we see Jesus, the one who died to bring us into companionship with the living God and to surround us with the strength and safety in numbers that we call the church. So that the hope would be this morning, as you walk out of this place, that two things would happen. One with relation to God, that you would walk away with such a deep gratitude for the companionship that you've been given in Christ Jesus with the living triune God. It's really easy to contrast uh, religion with relationship, ritual with relationship, and to say things that easily make their way on a coffee mug. It's about a relationship, Christianity, not about a religion. But to actually lean into that and to buy into and believe with your heart that you're in communion with the living God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, to to embrace, to press into that, to see it as as a gift to the praise of his glorious grace. It's an altogether different thing. It goes further than just contrasting something to religion. But then also to walk out of this place with that picture in your mind from Pilgrim's Progress and to go, "I, I can't do this isolation thing. That's not good enough. That's not a healthy way to live. And and, and not just that, not just is it a move toward healthiness to move toward Jesus' people, but but it's a move toward a gift that you've been given that's sitting there like an open box waiting to be enjoyed. Will we see the gifts of companionship with God and with his people as the beautiful things that they are? Or will we live life under the sun in contrast in the hopelessness of ever finding it like the author of Ecclesiastes? I love where we're about to go because we have an opportunity together to bring the both and to bear in these moments to come. We're gonna continue to worship in a number of ways. We'll worship through the receiving of communion. From now, from the time I leave the stage to the end of the service, the communion tables are open and available. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There's a table to my right and left, and there's one in the back by the coffee table. Um, You're welcome to engage that when you're ready to do so. What a glorious opportunity to experience as a means of God's grace the presence of Christ by his spirit in the receiving of the elements. And for us to do that together as God's people, as a collective. We also get to worship through prayer. If you'd like for somebody uh, on our prayer team in the back of the auditorium to pray with or for you, what a great and beautiful opportunity there is there for the both and to come to another follower of Christ in approaching the throne of God's grace in communion with God alongside another Christ follower. And we get an opportunity to sing to this God, communing with him, but doing it with collective voices as a together people. As we stand in the river that is this pilgrimage onward to the celestial city, right now, there aren't just two of us to go back to the picture in Pilgrim's Progress. There are a lot of us. And we get to make this run through the river together. So I pray that you're encouraged. I pray that you've, you, you find strength uh, in, in looking above the sun and seeing how the, this beautiful tapestry that God weaves together in companionship, that the gospel is the hope for that. And God has gifted us so very much.